My name is Peter. If you're visiting, I want to say really thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we, we are really excited to have you. We're excited about new, new things coming our way. We're excited about the rain going away. We're excited about the good news. Now, if you came for bad news, I'm sorry, I can't help you at all. But we're in a series called The Good News, and today I'm really excited to get into God's Word. Before I do that, I want to paint the picture of the American courtroom. It'll give context for what we're going to talk about. Have you ever seen an American courtroom? The custom when reading the verdict is for the defendant to stand to his or her feet to honor the judge. Now, as it relates to what we're going to talk about today, here's my very real concern. I believe that too many of us live our lives on trial to the wrong judge and jury. Whether it's the judge and jury of society at large and the expectations from society or our parents or our own guilt and insecurities or the devil himself uh, accusing you. We, we just linger too long in the wrong courtroom. But the good news is this. The good news is that God, the ultimate and true judge, knew the bad news about the guilty verdict of all of us. And so he left his bench to become the defendant on our behalf so he could pay the penalty and the payment for our guilty verdict and he could come back and return a better verdict with all legal and eternal authority. That's the good news of the good verdict and that's what I want to read to you today. And so I'm going to ask you to honor God by standing to your feet and honoring his word as I read the good news from John chapter 3 verse 16. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, let us not fail to grasp the gravity of the good news. I'm asking that you would do what only you can do. Jesus, you said, he who has ears, let him hear. And you're the one who gives ears to hear. And I'm asking in this very moment for ears to hear. Lord, I'm asking that you would speak even beyond my thoughts and my words, that you would speak to precious souls, to to marriages, to family heartache. Lord, speak to future legacies. Speak to current believers in this room to be able to apply your good news better to the anxieties of their lives. Lord, and speak to future believers. Create life through what you speak even now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not going to do that. I don't want to embarrass you right now. If I were to ask for a show of hands for those of us who've heard this verse, we can bring that back up. John 3.16. Maybe, maybe you've heard it or even memorized it. I would assume that I would see a lot of hands go up. Because the reason is, is that this is one of those verses that is known as a familiar verse. It's, it's familiar. And yet here's the danger of familiarity that we all need to be on guard against. The problem with familiarity is that 
One of the biggest things that prevents us from a deep and abiding knowledge, from knowing something truly, is that which we think we already know and thus we've grown familiar with. I saw this just the other day. I was, I was playing with my four kids and it was these amazing moments of just playing and that, the exhilaration of being a dad and experiencing the, the joy of the gift of life. And unfortunately, I can grow familiar with it. And so uh, the other day, I just stopped for a minute and just kind of took a break and just to kind of take it all in. The miracle of life, you know, the, the miracle of life that shrieks with joy when I try to chase or, or giggles when I tickle, just being a dad, I can so easily become familiar with it and so distracted by other things that I become impatient with my kids rather than rightly guarding the amazement and the fascination. I so easily surrender those moments to familiarity. And as much as that's tragic with the gift of life in my home, how much more tragic with the word of God when we can be familiar. So here's what I'm begging you. I'm begging you for the next 30 or so minutes to trade in. Everyone say trade in. That's a good, that's a good word for today. Trade in your familiarity with, for a, a renewed fascination from the throne of God as we approach this verse again. And I want to take it phrase by phrase, a little at a time, and we can do that. Can we do that? So here we go. Here goes that first verse, first phrase of the verse. We can keep it up here. For God so loved the world. Now I want to take this one chunk at a time, but this is the biggest chunk in my mind uh, that I want to spend some time on. For God so loved the world. The Bible, the New Testament, was originally written in Greek, Koine Greek. It's a, it's a type of Greek that's not around anymore. But certain scholars can look back and see the construction of this phrase, for God so loved the world, and it's a little bit peculiar. It's a little bit kind of intense. It uses a few different words in succession just to build up a, an extreme emphasis. How many of y'all know friends that are what I call intense, intense texters, right? These are people who on the regular throw down like all caps or extra punctuation, right? Or like excessive emojis, emoticons, you know what I'm saying? Some of y'all are looking at me because you know that that's me. So it's pretty often. But look, the construction of this sentence is actually a lot like that. In modern text language, the first phrase of this, this, this verse would actually go something like, God so, 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 so loved the world, exclamation point, heart emoji, sweaty, intense face emojis, you know what I'm talking about? That's actually probably an accurate contextual representation for this phrase, how it's structured. For God so loved the world. And that's how it's structured in the sentence. But look, how it was received in the first century was another thing that you need to know. A first century Jew who would have read this, an Israelite of God's people, to hear even in an indirect insinuation that God loved the whole world and not just the Jews would have come across as a little insensitive at the time. And, and to imply that God loved Everyone with this sort of intensity would have come across as outright offensive. 
You know, it would have been given for God to so, so, so love the Israelites, the people of God, who he has promised his love is upon them. But for God to love the cosmos, which is the Greek word that's used in this sentence, which means the whole world and all the different people in the world, the the Israelites, the Jews, and the Gentiles, the non-Israelites, For God to love all those people was a little bit offensive, and here's why. The Jews at the time were under the oppression of the Gentiles, the bitter, violent oppression of the Romans at the time. And to insinuate that God loved them so intensely would have felt at the time like God's complicit in the oppression. Wait, God loves them? That's like saying that God loves what they're doing to us. I mean, the thought is like this. How can God love the world? He is going to judge the world. That's what our prophets say, does it not? How could God love the world? The pride, the arrogance, the, the snuffing mockery against him. God doesn't love that. And to imply that he does is making it sound like he's complicit with all the things and the evils that are happening in the world. It would have been offensive. And so there was, an, there was a attention here to imply for God so so loved the world there was a tension and if you don't yet see the tension from John 3:16 let me let me draw out the tension a little bit more you see the same guy who walked with Jesus for several years and who got to experience his love and heard and knew that Jesus loves the whole world he's the same guy who actually wrote a letter probably 5 or no more than 10 years later to believers in Jesus And even though he said God loved the world, in this letter, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it says a command to us. Do not love the world. It really says it. It uses the same words. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of of God abides forever. Now, there are some people who believe that the Bible has a bunch of contradictions and undoubtedly would point out that this here where it says in 1 John that we're commanded to not love the world, but back here in, in John 3.16, it says that God loves the world. They would claim that this is a contradiction. I mean, God commands us to not love the world, but it says here that he loves the world. Is that a contradiction? Well, let's break this down a little bit. Let's break this down a little bit. We need to do a little bit of sentence diagramming. Any English majors in here? Sentence diagramming. This is my second shot because I got it backwards the first time in the first service. Sentence diagramming. I want to put up a sentence that ends with loves the world. And for now, I'm going to leave the subject blank. I think many of us get confused and get our priorities mixed up about how we are to function in the world because we give a little bit too much credence and importance to the, the object of sentences and the object of what God's uh, affections and love and desires are for. 
and we, we give a little bit too much credence to the verb of a particular issue. So when it comes to whether it's loving the world or dancing or music, we can get confused because sometimes if the subject is not filled in, we don't really have the whole meaning and the objectivity of what God is speaking about a particular issue. And so when I leave the subject blank, the verb is the conjugation of the verb to love, loves, and the object of the sentence is the world. Well, how much different is it when I actually put in the subject of the sentence? I'm going to put two sentences up here now. God loves the world. And then sentence two, Peter loves the world. That's this guy up here talking. The difference in the meaning of these two sentences depends entirely on the difference of the two subjects of the sentence. How different is God and Peter? Well, infinitely different. And so how different is God loving the world versus Peter loving the world? Well, completely, totally different. God loves with a sacrificial, costly love. And he loves the world in a way that redeems the sins of the world. Whereas Peter, this guy here, left to himself, tends to love the world with a a love that doesn't redeem the sins of the world, but tends to participate in the sins of the world. Unless I'm overtaken by a powerful love of God that moves in and through me, I tend to participate in the sins of the world. And therefore, God loving the world versus Peter loving the world are two different things. And when the Bible commands us to not love the world, but says that God does love the world, that's not a contradiction. That's just the difference in the nature of two different subjects, two vastly, infinitely different people. And I failed to see this about John 3.16. Let's bring this verse back up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This became what I saw as a familiar verse. When I first came to know Jesus, I read this verse, I cherished it. And over the years, I've, I've stopped cherishing it. I've seen people cheapen the meaning of love based on their own subjective understanding of it. But does that mean that God's real love is subjected to their cheapening? No, and let me tell you why it was wrong for me to stop cherishing the the value, the potency of John 3.16. I don't do that with other things that God gives me. God gave me marriage. He gave me a beautiful wife, and he told me I I can cherish and celebrate the sanctity of what he gave me going on 10 years now, or 10 years so far. Well, just because the world's confused about what marriage and relationship is doesn't mean that the objective power of marriage ceases to lose its power. I mean, have you ever heard of a thing called open marriage? It's actually a thing. It's disgusting. But it doesn't mean that God's confused about the gift that he still offers in marriage. 
that we can aspire to and be redeemed for. We don't need anyone else to, to tell us what marriage is based on what, how the culture's cheapened it. We definitely don't need the government to define it for us. God's love and his gift of life and relationship and marriage is still powerful. And just because some people cheapen it and pervert it doesn't mean it loses its potency. And so I am wrong if I am drawn away by how people counterfeit the real thing. I need to focus and celebrate on the real thing and guard my fascination and uh, amazement with the gift of life. God's love never gets old. I get old. In this verse, John 3, 16 always goes hard if I let it. So again, for God so loved the world. His love is fascinating. It should always cause us to to wonder. And too often I see the world simply as the enemy of God and not also the object of God's love and overwhelming affection. Look, I was an enemy of God. I grew up religious and I thought all my sin was so cute. And I was an enemy of God who memorized verses like this. And yet God loved me and he met me where I was and he transformed my life and he he transformed me from an enemy to a son. God loves the world. God loves People in the world that don't see that. And we need to not forget this. I want to give you a few examples of things that might, we might forget sometimes that, we, that God loves. God loves the world. You know what? God loves America. I didn't get any amens in the first service from that either. But you know what? God loves America. But it doesn't mean that he loves the way Americans love America. God doesn't just love America uh, the way patriotic, conservative Americans love America. God loves so much more. And he loves with a sustaining and a preserving love for Christians that he has chosen to call out to be an object of his affection, that he loves and he will preserve them long after America ceases to exist, which if you didn't know, that's going to happen. But his love will never cease to exist. God loves the world. God loves all races of people in the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in God's sight. That is an amazing song. We need to preach it to ourselves. All people are infinitely precious to God, and God loves all races of people. But listen, he doesn't love the way the world loves. He would never exploit the pain and the fear of one race of people to gain an advantage over another race of people. He loves to the degree that he heals, he restores, he strengthens, and he unifies. Look around this beautiful room around you. Only God can love like that. You can't, and I can't. God loves the world. God loves people who claim various gender identities, and sexual orientations. But he loves much deeper than we love. He loves so much deeper than we love. And he knows that we are entirely more than we allow ourselves to be defined by. We are so much more than our gender or our sexuality or what we would reduce ourselves to being. He knows we're so much more and God is not confused and he doesn't suffer from the same types of gender dysphoria and confusion as we do because he loves us. You know, there's one thing that all of us humans have in common. 
regardless of where uh, we walk into this room and the way, way we think about gay issues, is that on the sexual issue in general, all of us have a certain type, a different shade of brokenness and confusion about sexuality, all of us. But God doesn't. God is not confused about gender. He's not confused about the various gifts of life that he's given us to enjoy. He has not control, but boundaries and protections for us. And he loves even when we struggle with those things. And you know what? People in various shades of the struggle, he doesn't bully or belittle those people. He loves them to the degree that he's willing to transform. And he's able and powerful to do it. God loves the world. God so-so loves the world, but he doesn't love the way the world loves. And finally, this one's been a struggle for me this year. God loves Hillary and Donald. That was hard for me to say in the first service and hard for me to say this in this service. But God loves Hillary. God loves Donald. And he doesn't love and and endorse the same things that that they would say. That's not love. He loves people. I've struggled to, to see this this year. I have been corrected by the Holy Spirit on this issue. Because if I spent half the time praying for our politicians as I did complaining about them, I might be able to do a a few more redemptive things in that scenario and might represent our faith a little bit more accurately. God loves the world and he has the power to redeem the worst of sinners, including Donald, Hillary, and me and you. God loves the world. But here's the difference between the way the world loves and the way God loves the world. You know, we think we're loving the world when we're often just giving in to the ways of the world. But God loves the world not by giving in to the world, but giving to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You need to know that God is a giver. He is an extreme giver. He's an extremist. He didn't owe us the gift of his son, but he gave us the gift of his son. In fact, when we unpack the last part of this verse, you'll you'll know that the only thing God owed us was the payment of the judgment of allowing us to remain in the perishing that we've wandered away into. But he didn't pay us the payment. He gave us the life in his son. If someone earns something from you, you owe that person that something. And so listen, when you render that thing to that person, you're not giving to that person. You're paying. You're not giving, you're paying. But God gives us the gift of life in his son when he could have rendered the payment of death that we've earned. And this gift is delivered to people who deserve it the least like you and me. And he gives. And it makes the extremity of the gift amazing. But think about the value of the gift given. It says he gave his only son. I have one son, three daughters so far. I can't imagine losing my son, giving my son. I mean, the the, the thought of like losing him at all, I just have to stop. I can't continue to process it. But what about the priceless gift of the perfect son from the eternal father. I mean, this just outright blows my mind. 
God gave his only son. Check out what, what Romans 8 says about this, about this gift. Romans 8.32, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give with him graciously all things? Now think about that. In this progression with, in Paul's mind, compare, quote, all things to, quote, his own son. All things in this sentence progression is dwarfed by his own son. What that means is in comparison with the value and glory of God's only son, all other things combined are like nothing. So why would you worry about anything else in your life if God's willing to give you everything in his son? That's how generous and extreme his giving is. The gift of Jesus is unexplainable and indescribable. And I'm not going to try to describe how amazing it is, but, but I will dare you. I will dare you to spend some time with Jesus, reading the Bible on your own time, and just see if you can connect to the mystery of how he is greater than all things. When I first started being drawn by the Holy Spirit to, to know God, and I was evangelized by a campus ministry. I started to, to read the red letters in this Bible. In my Bible, the red letters of the, the, the words Jesus says. And I just started seeing the way he approached people. And I was just, my mind was blown. I, I, I was convinced right then and there, and I still am, that no human being can ever make up this person of Jesus. He's not a character in a fictional book. He is a preeminent person by whom we all can see the light of our lives through. And that's the person that God gave to us. Why would God give such an infinite gift? Well, because he so extremely, infinitely loves you. But why would God need to give such a great gift? That's the more fundamental question. It's because there is a resounding guilty verdict justly and rightly declared against all of us. And there's an infinite payment required if we're going to overcome that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This phrase, should not perish, is important. Perish uh, simply means die. But when it says it here, it's not just talking about uh, death as we know it, but it's an, an eternal forever and ever and ever type of perishing in death. And uh, that's, that's kind of hard to grasp sometimes, but it's the type of death that we need to understand should not perish. The reason it says should not perish is because contextually we should perish. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. In other words, the, the, the payment that God owes us for the verdict that we have earned by the evidence of your life and mine is perpetual perishing in death. Sin severs our relationship with God, the holy and sinless one. And sin cuts us off from the life source that is God. And if we cut off from that source now, then there is a consequence to that for tomorrow and for tomorrow's 
tomorrow. There's an eternal verdict of death that God owes everyone, and he justly allows to give that verdict over to everyone in his justice. So words like fire and hell, those aren't just ancient words that people who weren't as smart as us back in the day used. No, look, fire and hell and weeping, those are words that actually don't do enough to describe it. Go with me here for a second. If infinite joy comes from the the presence and exhilaration of being with Jesus, if it's indescribable what it's like to be with him, then it's indescribable the torment and heartache of, of being separated from him forever. And so words like that are just the most adequate words that we have available to us. It's the type of perishing that we, that we should suffer. I heard a guy recently ask, uh, probably a question that many of us have been asked similar to this. He said, uh, how is it fair that you have one guy who lives a decent and a moral life that doesn't believe in Jesus and so he goes to hell. But you have another guy who is a child molester, but 15 minutes before he dies, he believes in Jesus and okay, he's in paradise forever. He says, how is that fair? And let me address this on a few different levels. Uh, this is important. The first level is this. Most of the time when you hear questions like this, there's kind of a hidden presumption that you're supposed to just be in agreement with, but you have to stop for a second. The hidden presumption behind this question is that we are all start off on a level playing field that we're kind of in a state of moral neutrality before God. And so God kind of just arbitrarily says, you, no, you, yeah. And and we're all kind of in equal standing and we're in in a neutral place before God. But that's, that's outright wrong. None of us are in a neutral place with God morally. In fact, all of us are perishing. All of us are in a state of death and judgment. And we were all given over to this state by ourselves. We've separated ourselves from God. It's not my dad's fault. It's my dad's fault and my fault. We're all in this place together. And look, in light of the perfection of God, my sin, my unforgiveness, my lies, my perversion, all of my things that I felt better of myself when I compared to worse people than me, but when I compare to a holy and perfect and loving God, my sin starts to look a lot more like that villain, abuser, molester, closer to that person than it does to God. The God, by, by the way, who can't be blamed at all for our state of perishing. In fact, we are condemned by ourselves. John 3.16 is an amazing verse, but check out the verses that come after it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The very next verse is, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's very specific. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. So you need to know that there's no such thing as a moral person being arbitrarily condemned to hell by Jesus for for not saying the right magic church words. That's not how it goes. There is no such thing as a moral person. The only reason we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're moral people at all is because if we get close enough to the light of God, it will, will expose our immorality, all of us. And in our wickedness, what we do is we blame God and we try to to blame him for our state of perishing. We say things like, how could you presume that, there's, that you're the only way to heaven? You're the only way to salvation where we should, we should be amazed that there's any way at all out of this, this progression and digression of death and perishing. That there's any way, that there's any hope at all is what should amaze us and fascinate us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's be careful about what we call fair. Because John 3.16 is not fair. The only thing that's fair is for us to go on perishing forever. The only thing that's fair is for Jesus to have never gone to the cross and suffered the kind of suffering he suffered. And let me tell you why. Jesus was the only person who was never in a state of perishing. He was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't have the same seed of sin, and he lived the life that we should have lived, but none of us have ever lived. And nonetheless, he died the death that we should have died because it was the choice he made to pay the penalty for our guilty verdict. And he took the payment of that upon himself He suffered, died, and and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, proving that he was God and gaining the power to offer salvation to anyone who would turn from a state of perishing and receive the good news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not continue to perish, but have eternal life. Believing in him is not something you do to garner his favor. Believing in him is giving up on all your hope to do anything for yourself or for God or to save yourself. And rendering your life to the mercy of God and placing your faith only in him. Many of us in this room, maybe you're like me. Some of us are here where maybe you've grown up doing religious things and you are here and you came here. Even coming here was trying to perform for God to please him. And God wants you to know, stop. Stop trying to perform for me, says the Lord. Stop trying to earn my favor and to please me. You're perishing. But in your state of perishing, you're more loved than you'll ever know. And he wants you to stop trying to perform for him and he wants you to lay it all down 
For, for some of us, the first time in forever to receive fully Jesus, to fully cast ourselves on the faith and belief that the gift he gave is enough and doesn't require any help from you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show specifically who that person is, who needs to lay down their own best efforts to please you and to fully surrender themselves to your love for the first time. I don't know who that person is, but you need to know that God knows you and you are dearly loved with a precious and costly love that when Jesus was sent to the earth and when the Father saw the suffering he would go through and when he saw the perishing of your life and your striving today, he saw it all and he was pleased because he knew he would be bringing you to a moment where you could receive the gift. And maybe right now is your moment where you need to lay it down and say, I receive it. I 100% give myself my best effort, my worst failures. Give myself to the one who's already given himself to me. If this is your moment, God sees you, but he wants you to participate with a decisive moment of faith where you just say, yes, God, and you show it by just raising your hand. Even while we're all praying right now, if that's you, raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Anyone else? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that step of faith in your precious child. Thank you, God. Anyone else? Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would give us all the grace to embrace your fascinating and amazing love today. The good news as it relates to the hard stuff in our life. Meet us at our level of faith. Amen. Before we close, can you stand to your feet with me? I have a special way I want to close. I think we all lose sight of the amazingness of God's gift to us. And so often, the, the worries, the anxieties of my life can, can bear a lot more weightiness in my soul than the amazingness of the gift of life that he gives me. And we have to sometimes tell ourselves what to be amazed by. Don't be weighed down by your worries. Be amazed by this. And the Bible says there's life and death in the power of the tongue. And you can declare a, a change of disposition by declaring that his love is amazing. And so what I want to do is I want to sing the first verse of Amazing Grace together. And so tell yourself, preach the good news to yourself. And I pray that even before we sing this, that, that you, you could ask the, the Holy Spirit, what is an area of your life where you've grown familiar with God and you need to be renewed by a new fascination? Even before we, we, we sing, just ask the Lord. And as he's speaking to that thing, I just want you to just surrender that thing and declare that God's love and his grace is more amazing.